0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm not complaining. How are you?
1: Good. Um, you know, I know we're going to be talking about this, but I feel like this, 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 this conversation marks a, a transition point in your own mission.
0: Oh, good. I, think- I need one. My <laughs> mission needs one.
1: Do you feel? Do you do you sense your 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 impending bodhisattvahood?
0: Uh, you know, maybe we should uh, for 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 our non-Buddhist listeners explain that a bodhisattva is someone who is now. Now, is it technically like they're on the verge of enlightenment? They could have enlightenment; it's within their grasp. But enlightenment, true enlightenment, would take them away from their mundane mission of going around and helping people. So they refrain from getting fully enlightened and just entering nirvana and s- spend their time helping pe- is that that's the idea right i think that's one conception of it right yeah. that they forego their own enlightenment
1: to to put their energy well god into knows this. i've
0: foregone my own enlightenment now how, how do i do the rest <laughs> now um, you go about helping everybody else <laughs> i mean i, I by, by foregone i don't mean i had the option uh i just mean i have uh, not achieved it um so okay so i'll go around helping each other uh helping everybody else okay Got it. But we. But we. Uh, but that became
1: that can be its own topic into this this conversation. What a conception of enlightenment or awakening might involve, um, because I think that's part of your, um, your your uh, salvific message as a Bodhisattva.
0: I think it's relevant to my salvific message. We should say, by the way, that you're Josh Summers, and this is another in a series of conversations that we're calling the Dharma of Bob, uh, a name that I think you generously came up with and in any event are generously uh, indulging me in uh, in pursuing the topic um, and you're globally famous yoga guru is that, is that saying <laughs> it, uh, at, least in your, at least in your mind in, um, in my mind well that's what yeah. I, all, all everything I know of is happening in my mind so that doesn't distinguish it from anything else um, and what so could you say a little more about uh, the evidence that I'm on the verge of Bodhisattva? I'd love to be there. On the well, verge of the verge of enlightenment, I guess that would be.
1: You know, as a, I should say first and foremost, you know, I, I've been a, a, a fan of yours for a while. And um, in reading your newsletters and listening to the conversations you have with other folks, in your last newsletter, which I'm not even sure if it was, that was a, a, a newsletter that went only to paid subscribers or was a, a general audience that- newsletter. But there
0: was... Was only to pay. So this is a non 0 newsletter and like everyone else on Substack, I recently created a paid edition and in that I've decided to do this thing where I'm kind of writing a book uh, tentatively titled The Apocalypse Aversion Project or like working on a book, talking about the book and the writing of the book and trying to develop it within the confines of the paid newsletter. Sorry for that advertisement, but we're done. No, it's
1: good. It's good context. So I we, we've been getting sort of updates about the potential book project. And in the last uh, newsletter to that point, um, you know, I think you made the, the strongest case I've heard you make yet about the need for a kind of psychological evolution or a transformation of consciousness in humanity if the apocalypse is to be averted. Which is why I'm saying, suggesting you have a bodhisattva, me- me- salvific mash- message now. It's like, you-
0: uh, I see. So the message, the message that I will, uh, that I will promulgate during my impending bodhisattva phase, is now clearer to you. Mm-hmm. Now all I have well, to no, do. Well, no, is- I think it's.
1: I think it's. I think you're. I think you've been circling around it for a while, and 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 I think probably like me, you're you. There's a kind of a some uh, an allerg- allergy allergy in your own psyche, that's, that's, that's averse to making such grandiose pronouncements and things like that. So um, the fact that you're opening to that, 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 that kind of an idea, that statement is, is yeah. Uh, is it's
0: like, it's like Dharma of Bob. Even I can only like accept that because Bob is the kind of name that makes the phrase so obviously ironic. Right. Right. There's a, there's a, there's like a if, it, in- if my name were Sebastian, or, or, or some like you know, Eastern sounding name, you know, uh, even uh, it, it would be it, you know, it would seem like a more if there was just one syllable endeavor.
1: after your current syllable of Bob, like yeah, Baba Bob, or Bobby Sattva, Bobby, yeah, there, suddenly it gets bizarre, yeah, but but there's a but the, yeah, right, there's an implied self deprecation by saying Dharma of Bob,
0: right? That's the key, is there is the an I've been blessed with the inherently self mocking name of Bob. Um, so, uh,
1: but, I, but, I, but I think, you know, you know, from my perspective, like the, if someone is going to be taking on this message, it needs that kind of psychological trait. The, the messenger needs that kind of psychological trait. Otherwise it's going to be, it will be, uh, you know, much more easy to dismiss in a certain sense. Like there's a, there's a, there's an honesty, there's a, there's a recognition of what your are in all of it. And um, and this is why I think it's it's interesting for someone like you to be taking this message forward because it, you are I think you straddle uh, a few different worlds nicely and are able to communicate one world to the other in a way that that might be have, have a kind of stronger
0: force of persuasion. Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, I mean, two of them. Well, go ahead. I'm, I, so God knows to, I don't I'm going to slap you now. You're 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 uh, I'm liking this. I'm liking this.
1: Well, no, compared to like someone like me who might not be fortified with the, with the same kind of specific worldview and, 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 and details within that worldview to make the case compelling. You know, I could say we, we need an upgraded consciousness if we're going to overcome tribalism. But, you, you know, you have the, the, the historical reach, uh, the, the contextual reach to 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 unpack that and make the case fairly strongly too. An audience that might not be privy or you know prone to be to be sympathetic to that kind of an idea, or even see the need for it.
0: I think you'd be good at that part. The the I, I mean, when I think of the part that maybe is more distinctive to me, I mean, I'm reminded of the kind of basic split. Uh, I mean, there's two paths you can go to in talking about this thing. I'm, again, somewhat ironically calling the apocalypse, but the threat that the world could enter a spiral of doom. Uh, and one is like the policy realm. It's like you can say, well, we're, you know, we've been, uh, human society has been kind of evolving, you might say, toward globalization for tens of thousands of years. Here we are on the brink of global community. If we don't solve certain international kind of global problems, most famously climate change, but not only that by any means, various arms control issues, you know, AI, gene splicing. I think there are all kinds of uh, policy issues we need to address. You know, that's one way you can talk about this as a policy matter. And I think, um, but my view is that we can't get to the point of seriously tackling those problems until there really is a change in human consciousness on a fairly widespread basis, and that's that's the the thing I kind of said in this issue, of the newsletter that you're you're picking up on. There were people in the comments section who were like, "Oh God, raising consciousness! Please, we've heard this before. This is like, wh- what is this? Nineteen sixty nine? Did it work that time? I, you know, but." Um, I just am convinced, I'm not saying it'll work, I'm just convinced that human psychology, what's sometimes called the psychology of tribalism, and specifically some kind of cognitive biases that constitute that, uh, are really fundamentally in the way of us keeping the planet from uh, going over the brink. That is my view.
1: And to tie it into some of your other work, would you... How comfortable you, would you be with the, with the idea that the, 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 the biases and the, the, the psychological constraints that most people operate from bring them to a perception of the world whereby they see uh, dynamics in zero-sum terms, more than non-zero-sum terms? Meaning to, to really to apprehend the kind of global problems that you're addressing and, and want the policy level to address – um, it requires a perception of the dynamic in non zero sum terms versus zero sum outcomes. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think there are zero sum dynamics. And uh, uh, by the way, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but kind of all the global, pro- all these problems I mentioned that need solving, you know, arms race in space, bioweapons, uh, arms race, um, climate change, other environmental problems, those are all non zero sum problems where. You know, nations could cooperate and achieve a win-win outcome or fail to cooperate, achieve a lose-lose outcome. Um, and I, I do think there is a failure to appreciate how many of those non-zero-sum dynamics they are, how important they are. Uh, at the same time, there are real zero-sum dynamics, you know. There, there, there uh, are uh, – you, you have competitors in the world. You have rivals in the world. You have countries that want to attack you. That all of that can happen, and I, and I'm not recommending being blind to that. But I, I I guess what worries me is is that I think human psychology was designed by evolution to deal with zero sum dynamics and non zero sum dynamics in ways that are subtler than we appreciate. And I can get into some of that. But what worries me is that too often. The kind of zero-sum part of our psychology is activated in a way that keeps us from pursuing the non-zero-sum path. And, and it's in the interest of people to activate it, especially politicians, but also people on Twitter. These, these like, you know, social media potentates who build up huge followings by activating the tribalistic, uh, part of our brain. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I would say I think part of the problem is we don't see the non-zero-sum dynamics. And then there's the the subtler problem of how the activation of kind of the the part of our brain designed to deal with competition and rivalry prevents us from seeing it and, and acting on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, I think maybe one of the things to
1: explore here is what do you see – the uh, kind of the, a working model for how one's constant consciousness or psychological perspective would evolve like how how does that what are the, what are kind of some of the variables or conditions that support that and and what does it what does it look like and and one thing I just want to sort of throw out there is is there there is this field of of psycho in psychology you known as transpersonal psychology that uh, recognizes, <clears throat> was I
0: okay? You're okay? The big book there?
1: That's a good question. Um, not, not having read it, I'm not sure. I mean, the person, my entree into that was, uh, the, 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 the uh, <laughs> the contentious thinker Ken Wilbur,
0: who, uh, um, oh, maybe this is different then. um,
1: but there's other people, I, uh, Francis Vaughn, I mean, even one of my therapists that I worked with for years was part of the transpersonal psychology movement. Which is just recognizing that above and beyond sort of pre-egoic levels of consciousness that we, we occupy as a child and then the sort of the egoic level of consciousness that we grow into as an adolescent and adult, there exist levels of, of being, levels of identification, levels of, of consciousness beyond the sort of the egoic level that are w- within the, 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 the growth potential of all being, of all humans. Mm-hmm. And, 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 Typically, it's the it's the contemplative mystical traditions that that speak about those higher reaches of, of human development. Um, but more and more, you know, I'm seeing contemporary teachers today speaking about just it's just the, the, the normal potential of growth that we all have. And it's not something that's that's, uh, you know, ab- above everybody's means. And it's just a question of whether we're willing to. Yeah. To, to, to support that growth or to, to take, to take care of that growth.
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, it turns out I'm okay. You're okay. Huge bestseller long, long ago. That was transactional psychology, not <laughs> that different thing. I just, I just learned, uh, from Googling the, um, yeah, uh, I, I would say, I mean, first of all, as for Ken Wilbur, people have always said I should read him. I never in really fact, have in because fact, I said yeah, that to you
1: the first time I met you, which was 2003. Yeah. And, and do you want a, a replay of your reaction?
0: I can I can predict I, I, I think I can guess, but go ahead. Uh, it was just at the end of the retreat and you dropped an F-bomb. <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't. Did I?
1: Wow, said, that I'm was, that be was amazing because
0: that was that was my most transformational retreat. I mean, imagine how bad I am normally if at the end of that retreat I dropped an F-bomb. Now, I'm sure I didn't say. Well, what did I say? Go ahead. You said something like you're, you're like the fifth person that meant
1: to tell me I should read this fucking guy.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, that's not so bad. Not too,
1: not too bad, but it was funny.
0: But the reason, Um, the reason I never do is because he has this whole specialized vocabulary and whenever, and this whole system built up. And whenever I see anything he's written, I think, Oh God, it's, it looks like I have to read three of his earlier books before I can even understand this sentence. So it's like, it seems like, uh, it would be a long investment but uh but anyway i've heard i've heard good things yeah he's i mean he's
1: controversial he has he 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 um has a kind of an an anti talent for 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 picking gurus uh, that he endorses so he's 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 been yeah some of them <laughs> uh, fell into controversy as i recall exactly and yeah. I, and so but um but the way he speaks about you know and and he's he's more of a synthesizer of lots of different uh, fields of knowledge but um there's a spectrum of consciousness in his model, and and so the the three big ones are there's the development of the, the the baby consciousness or pre-egoic consciousness, then sort of conventional level egoic consciousness, and then post-conventional or transpersonal consciousness. Those are the big three with lots of gradations in the in between. Um, but in to to come back to something you were saying, you know, it's not just about policy. Um, implementation to to fix global issues. It's it's that's that's sort of a an external um, analysis of the problem, but the internal, the subjective side of it all is is the level of the individual's consciousness within that system or those systems, and that will condition how someone both perceives the dynamic they're in and then responds to that dynamic.
0: Yeah, and I think this points to what I consider to be the good news about all this is that and you mentioned this in your email after you read uh, that issue of the newsletter, is that I do think if you ask, well, what changes in psychology are needed to save the world, it turns out that they're the same changes that are needed to save yourself. In other words, self-help can equal uh, global help, like, if, if you, if you ask, like, why do people go to meditation retreats? It's not to save the world, usually. It's because they may have some issue. They may be suffering psychologically. They may be okay, but want to develop a deeper appreciation of some, they want to be in some sense happier, better off personally. That is overwhelmingly the main motivation for getting into this stuff. And yet, uh, when you come out of like a, say, a very successful if I'm allowed to use the word about meditation retreats, meditation retreat, um, you know, you're in a state of mind where it's like, wow, I guess if everybody were like this, it would be a much better world because you're feeling you're, you're less harshly judgmental of people. I, I maintain you're less in the throes of the kinds of cognitive biases. And I think the two big ones are confirmation bias, which everyone's heard of, attribution error, which a lot of people haven't. Maybe we'll have time. You know, we've talked about some of this before. Maybe we will today. But um, I think, you know, the pursuit of self-help through this particular path turns you into a better uh, global citizen. Now, uh, what what people ask if they accept that much is, well, okay, but A, is it really a – I mean, first of all, what if just some of us are good global citizens and the rest aren't? Don't they crush us? There's that question, uh, and then there's a question of okay, but is it really necessary? I mean, do we really need a whole lot of uh, global uh, people who are in this frame of mind, which is, after all, not a, a trivially easy thing to cultivate, right? Or or maintain? It's it's right. I mean, it's like we we get glimpses of it. We're a nicer person for a while, then we're not so nice. I mean, it, it's it, this this. You know, uh, let me put it another way. The enlightenment we alluded to before is like, uh, you get a sense on a meditation retreat for what that would be like, but I don't personally get there. And, and in any event, you know, three months after the retreat, I'm definitely not there. Uh, this is all a digression by way of saying <laughs> I don't claim to have maintained any, any super laudable state of mind. But, but, but just to finish the thought, um, people do ask, Do we really need to, like, work with such kind of discipline on making at least modest progress toward transcending the psychology of tribalism, transcending these cognitive biases? Is that really necessary to keep the world from entering a spiral of doom? I'm increasingly convinced that the answer is yes. I'm sorry. (laughs) I do think it is. Again, the good news is that this this helping the world can align with helping yourself. That's good news. Bad news is it's not a, 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 a trivially easy path, right? And but the good news too, at least to my mind,
1: is that there are other other things emerging or re-emerging, um, namely psychedelic research, yeah. uh, which, like like you're saying, is is largely being pitched. I think in terms of uh, healing, self healing, and 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 whether it's PTSD, end of life, anxiety. Um, whatever it might be, like addiction. And, and the thing is that when people, at least when I'm reading, when, when the people have a deep psychedelic experience that, that alleviates whatever ails them, that it also comes with a, with a shift in worldview, um, uh, mm-hmm. as a result of that.
0: It, it often does. I'm always reluctant to, you know, uh, kind of casually embrace psychedelics because, you know, they're, they're kind of explosive in the you know I mean people can have very bad experiences on psychedelic drugs at the same time um, when people are very careful and in good hands uh, that's much less likely to happen and people can have very deeply good experiences on them that have enduringly good effects um you know somewhat of the kind we're talking about I think in the in the sense of, of, of helping you get a little out of the kind of standard, um, highly constrained uh, mindset that people are in, I suddenly just flashed on. You know the play Our Town. Have you ever have you ever seen Our Town by Thornton Wilder? I, I think I may. It may have been there's something in m- an there's early this, high
1: school curriculum. Yeah, I on.
0: only I only remember. There's a part of it that's very Buddhist. I don't remember the exact details, but there's. Uh, you know, it's about, there's something in there about, uh, somebody dying and going to heaven and then looking back at, I think at an earlier part of their life or something, but the, 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 one of the flashes of insight is, wow, people are so self-absorbed. I mean, look, this was my house and we were living our lives and we weren't even paying attention to each other because we were so wrapped up and there's, uh, in, in ourselves, you know, I didn't even, I forget whether it was I didn't notice the beauty of my parents doing this, or they didn't, or whatever. But it's like there's this line, like people are in little boxes. You know that, that it's some, that's something like the very line in that in that play, and um, I do think a fairly consistent effect of uh, a not infrequent effect of psychedelics can be to get people out of a box in a certain sense. Again, it's like kids don't try this at home. It's, it's not, uh, you know, it, 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 it's stuff you have to be careful with, but I think there's more and more actual evidence. There's been a resurgence of actual research, the Johns Hopkins stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I on my own podcast, I
1: had a kind of interesting conversation with a, a Zen priest in Switzerland who, uh, he, he trained in, in California at the, at the San Francisco Zen Center, but, um, back in, in Switzerland, he was part of a, Study where it was a, I think they had a six or seven day Vipassana retreat, um, or Zen retreat, one of them, but they, on the fifth day, uh, half the participants received a placebo and half got a pretty strong dose of psilocybin. Um, and then they tracked the changes. And apparently the, the, the shifts in, in brain activity were strongest and more enduring in the meditators, which was, hmm. kind of that's interesting. interesting.
0: I, I, yeah, I certainly think, um, I mean, you know, psychedelics... so the
1: meditators that got the psilocybin, not the ones that got the placebo.
0: Right. I, I, I certainly think, um, you know, psychedelics are kind of famously not an everyday thing. I mean, I don't know anything about microdosing culture, but that's different. Uh, the, the, uh, um, I, I but, but are, you know, kind of heavy psychedelic trips are kind of famously something you don't do every day or every, uh, week. I, 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 um, um, is it Michael? Uh, the book "How to Change Your Mind." Um, Michael Pollan, right? Right, Michael Pollan. I I had him on, and he said, you know, and he went through and did all these things, and and uh, wrote the book about it. These various different drugs, and I asked him what he planned for the future, and he said, maybe like once a year on my birthday or something, do do psilocybin, and that that would you know, that wouldn't uh, probably be a bad regime.
1: Well, whether it's psychedelics or meditation, um and you don't have to speak about the psychedelic side, but what 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 is it about the meditation that you see as facilitating whether whatever you want to call it, the transformation of consciousness, the evolution of psychology, the, the shift of getting someone out of a, a perceptual box that's confining and, and, and kind of imprisoning?
0: <clears throat> yeah. Um
1: Cause I think that I, I, I would like to hear, I mean, I know this is largely the topic of your, of your book. Why Buddhism is true.
0: Yeah. I mean, let me, they- um, let me try to answer in a way that speaks to those. One of the questions I alluded to early, like earlier, like, is this really necessary? Um, the, uh, well, actually, to, to that point, can I while you get yeah. your thoughts, let me give yeah. you an
1: analogy because, as you know, I've recently relocated to Maine. Right. So, and I would call myself prior to moving to Maine, I was kind of an urban, an urban idiot. In that, I, you know, I could function in an urban environment, but I'm not very handy. I really don't know my way around the shop or wood shop or any tools or anything like that. And I come up to Maine. And you know I'm I'm living in a fairly rural town, and uh, and it's the middle of winter, and I'm suddenly dealing with the condition of ice everywhere. And so for me personally, this is a, a rapid change in in environmental conditions, and I don't necessarily have the skill set yet to adapt or to to function well in those conditions. So what's been happening is one last week I nearly came to my death by uh, skidding out on on black ice driving home yeah. at night. Started fishtailing in the, just out of nowhere. And, nearly and you don't
0: have time to do what they say, which is steer into the curve, right? It's like, who has time to think that, right? Well,
1: you know, yeah, I had no thought process going on. I just somehow I got between the file coming head on at me and the, the telephone pole to my right. I, I got uh. through the middle and came out skate, on skate. So all good there. But my driveway, which is quite long, is just basically a glacial sheet of ice. And uh, to get out there, I've had to use crampons, and so I've been thinking about uh, how wonderful are, crampons are.
0: Oh, those are crampons. mountain climbing. Like for you to walk, you mean? Yeah, they, I mean they're they're probably
1: more of a you know everyday kind of. You don't need to use them on mountains, but they're just you know, slip on like yak yeah, tracky type things. You, okay. you slip them over your boots, and you okay. they give you they give you traction. But you know the thought of me trying to walk on this ice without those crampons is like I would be falling over and slamming my head and, 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 and knocking myself out every few steps. Um, and it, it after reading your newsletter, if, you know you're you're describing that there is this rapid cultural and technological change that in many ways has outpaced our the 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 growth and evolution of our consciousness. Maybe putting words in your mouth there, but that's what my sense of it is. And what we need are a kind of cognitive cramp so that we can we can walk up upon this new terrain or, or engage with this this these developing conditions in a way that um you know we we don't find ourselves uh, not passed out or knocked out on the on the ice.
0: Right. Yeah, I know I think um like social media, that's a technological change that we have so far not adapted to very successfully. I would say and rather than um, I mean it is you know a lot of good things have happened on social media but also as is now kind of well known um, social media has in some ways activated the psychology of tribalism exacerbated it Uh, you know it has to do with the the algorithm that favors sharing you know and, and, and how that winds up appealing to the worst of us sometimes and it it leads to people who activate the worst in us, having the most Twitter followers and so on. Um, and, yeah, something,
1: and look, uh, something to that point, though, uh, w- one thing that I remember speaking to Jenny O'Dell about, who wrote How to Do Nothing, uh, mm-hmm. was that another feature of so- the social media landscape is that it collapses context. And and part of our ability to 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 interpret and make sense of what we're, what the information we're receiving is, is context dependent. And without that context, it's just so much easier for the very things you were just describing, the cognitive biases to come in and, and shape the interpretation.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a number of senses, it's like context in the sense of like, yeah, you, you don't understand, you'll see a tweet and like, you may not understand that it's sarcastic because you don't have the context of understanding the person you may not understand what they were replying to when they said it and and what kind of assumed knowledge, you know, what, what knowledge they're assuming. Yeah, no, it, that's a big problem. And, and, you know, some of these problems may be solved uh, or at least addressed uh, with some success via policy, right? Um, or, or changes that maybe the software gods at Twitter and Facebook, uh, the algorithm gods make. For their own reasons, that may happen, but I think it's, it's clear that this is a good example because if you are, I think, more mindful on social media, you will be happier. You will certainly have more equanimity. And by mindful, I mean just in, in, uh, uh, pretty straightforward sense of like, Aware of the feelings that are driving your own behavior on social media. So like, if you're, if you see something and go, yeah, I'm going to share that. Like, if you pause and reflect on what it is that's making you want to share it and ask yourself whether really you have enough knowledge to be confident that sharing it is a good thing, that's an, that's an instance of mindfulness. And, and I'm maintaining that if you're more mindful on social media, you will be on balance, happier, have more peace of mind, more equanimity, and it will be good for the world. You will do less damage to the world. So that's um,
1: – that's thinking, the
0: kind
1: – yeah. If, if, as you're talking about being more mindful on social media, it reminds me of the, the studies that Judd Brewer, who you yeah, know – the guy, uh, I know Jud, um, the, the psychiatrist doing a lot of research on, on meditation now at Brown University is uh, centered there. But um in his studies on cigarette addiction or nicotine addiction, he would if I got it right, he would just tell people he wouldn't encourage them to try to stop smoking exercising willpower to to, to negate the habit but just encourage them to the study encourage them to be mindful as possible as present as possible to the experience when they whenever they would light up
0: Well whenever they would want a cigarette it's like well, but but ha- it was also that it was it was the
1: specific, you know, putting the cigarette to your lip, feeling ah. the tactile, and then and then tasting—you know—really being present to the taste. And in most people, when I talked to him, he said most people found it so un, un, unsavory that, that their 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 enjoyment of the experience dramatically diminished. And I would say the same thing about social media. If you really pay attention, it's not—you you, know—you can do the things you're describing. Yeah. But I think you would just become in, uh, profoundly impressed by how unpleasant the whole ecosystem there is.
0: Right. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, the revenge, the impulse for revenge. It's like, I mean, say you're like, you're replying to somebody and you're like, uh, you're going to show them or you're going to talk about somebody in a way that humiliates them or something. And then you know you reflect on that. It's like, how good did that really feel? I mean, you know, uh, there must have been something rewarding about it. You, di- you know, you 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 do it if you do it habitually, but uh, I, I think there is that kind of reflection too on the on the on the, on the quote gratifying part itself. But mm-hmm. then separately, there's what I said, which is reflect on the initial impulse. So, like with cigarette smoking, if you feel the urge to um, light up. And you do succeed in, in pausing and reflecting on that mindfully, you may see that that actually disempowers it. If you observe it, uh, with enough kind of objectivity, non-attachment, whatever you want to say, you will see its power waning. And that, and, and, and that's the place you can get to on social media where, um, you know, you're just, or even with, uh, A related thing, which is, you know, I I have basically ADD. I just have trouble paying attention. And one thing I do a lot is like I'm working. If I'm writing something, it may be just an email and maybe a piece of writing. I get to a hard part where it's like unpleasant to keep going because I don't know. And I'll suddenly feel these temptation, this like, why don't you fire up Twitter feeling? And... When I'm really being, uh, mindful, I, I am aware of that moment and I can really just close my eyes and reflect on the feeling itself and it loses its power. And that's not easy, but it's the kind of, uh, it's the kind of power mindfulness can give you. And again, I really think it makes the whole world a better place. Um, if you have, that degree of, uh, I guess you could say self-control. That sounds more old-fashioned and Western than, uh, might be normal in this context. But, um, now, now I could, you know, anyway, go ahead. We, we could, we could talk more about what, why exactly, I mean, there are non-social media contexts where you would like people to be more mindful as well that, that more obviously pertain to matters of like war and peace, um, but uh and i'm not saying mindfulness is the only path to becoming the kind of person who is uh doing more that's good for the world and more that's good for themselves i'm not i'm not saying that it's just the path i'm most conversant in and i think i think is very well suited to the problem
1: so one of the phrases that i i i, I think is interesting from from ken wilber is that in this path of growth or or development um, he often uses the phrase transcend and include. That as there's an emergent new dimension of being, it it doesn't transcend and sort of negate the the, the prior states or prior levels. It it transcends and includes it, kind of like Russian dolls ever expanding. And um, and I think that's it's important to at least I've I've noticed this experientially that you know that you can have the, the kind of a broader less contracted less identified sense of self sense of consciousness but it it doesn't negate the patterns of the sort of the previous level of being or previous egoic sense that you had those so so for the example of you know being more focused and 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 keeping your concentration on your writing you know you, you weren't able to stay focused by transcending having distractions you're becoming better able to recognize the patterns of distraction and release yourself from them. And, and um, the same way with cognitive biases, I'd say it's like my sense is you don't you don't you don't negate or get rid of you don't erase the cognitive bias. You you kind of wake up out of an, a level of identity that's attached
0: or fixated within the bias. Okay, so we had a, a little uh, technical issue there. As I recall, you were asking me about. Uh, this Ken Wilber idea that I'm not that familiar with that as you, I mean, he has this whole, I guess, elaborately worked out path of progress, right? There are these stages and there are these levels you attain and stuff, which has an analog in, in, in Buddhist tradition as well in certain Buddhist traditions, but, uh, he's got his own version of that, I think. And are, are you, is part of that idea, uh, that you never, I guess I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, one thing I would say about just to get back to like the cigarette smoking example and even the cognitive biases and in general with mindfulness, you don't like fight, you don't fight the urges that are causing trouble. You just kind of step back and observe them and that, that disempowers them. But, uh, but it sounds like that's not exactly what you're saying wilbur is saying when he um am i right well that's part of it
1: i mean i think i mean i think the first step is just to pay attention to to whatever the energy is whether it's a you know a, a, an impulse of ill will or a strong craving you you know whatever is ailing you or, or arising, you just pay attention to that i think the the process that that facilitates is that um you know, in a phenomenological sense, whatever you're observing, whatever object you're observing, you, you're, you're taking it as an object, no longer as the subject that's aware of the object. So the things you normally are subjectively identified with, like, say, thoughts and feelings, they, be, they start becoming very, in one sense, objects within your awareness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, that, and that, that sort of unblends your, your, the, the location of your center or the center of your own identity that that unblends it from being, you know, attached or, or uh, contracted around the experience or the sensation or the thought or the feeling, and 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 shifts it into the the, the more pure subjectivity that's aware.
0: Yeah, um... and I think that's to me in my
1: model at least the, the way I conceptualize it. That's the 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 the, the, the fundamental. Uh, way that meditation does facilitate this kind of growth and, and, it, and it's it's a slow process but you, you kind of hinted at this it's like you can you can have peak experiences of higher levels of development and you could even rank in our case which i think wilbur does and many of the wisdom traditions do is that the ground of one's being is ever present the, the ground of your awareness um, is always present it's just that it gets you could say maybe it gets more easily recognized at higher stages of sort of psychological development um, but, but that said, whatever stage you're at, you still have access to the lower levels. So like an adult has access to their infantile, uh, states of consciousness and can sometimes get, those can come out as we have all seen.
0: Yeah. Um, you don't quit having feelings for one thing and, and you don't, uh,
1: But even the very, very, very selfish, selfish, self-aggrandizing feelings, the the tyrannical feelings of an infant, those those are still present and and nested within sort of more restraining, culturally shaped egoic levels of. of, um,
0: Yeah, I mean, there I uh, I, I, I'd I'd be agnostic. I mean, um, it's starting to sound not quite Freudian, but uh, having a little. Uh, what would I say? Uh anyway, I, I I don't know. I I I don't I'm out of my depth or something. Um the uh you know, and also I should, you know, I'm not and this is why I'm not a true bodhisattva, you know. I'm not I'm not like I have not, you know, there are people I know who have put in well, you have put in a lot more time on the uh, the cushion probably and but I certainly know people who have, you know, they've done like months. I'm not saying this is you, but they've done like months of, of, of silent, three months silent meditation retreats. And, and I assume that Ken Wilber is somebody who, who did intensive regimes of various kinds to try to reach and, and maintain higher levels of consciousness and so on. And, and like, you know, my longest meditation retreat is two weeks. Um, I, uh, have not been able to arrange my actual life in a way that is consistent with, uh, the maintenance of some kind of like highly commendable state of consciousness. Although I like to think it's a little higher than it would be if I had never, uh, discovered meditation. Um, so I'm not, you know, like I haven't been through the jhanas or any, you know, these various, uh, various hierarchies people try to ascend. Um, so I, I, I'm a, I'm a witness of limited, uh, expertise. Well, uh, okay.
1: There's, there's a way that sometimes, I and mean, this is where, I mean, this whole conversation and and I think one of the things you and I share is, is the, the, the concern that speaking around about this stuff can, can carry with it a whiff of sanctimony. Like, you know, we're better than everybody else because we've been doing these things and they're, and they're, they're lesser levels of consciousness. People whatnot um so it i'm trying to think of how to proceed here the um i think a you might be being a little bit too humble about your own uh experience um you know we've talked a lot i've heard you talk with other people about it and you know you've had some pretty mind-blowing experiences in meditation and, yes. and even just what you said about at the end of your first meditation retreat you felt profoundly different. And I remember mm-hmm. you, you had the vibe of someone who was profound. I didn't know you well at that point. I just met you, but you definitely had the sense of someone who was in such an altered state from their normal default state that they were kind of tripping of themselves with, with, with
0: awe or, uh, I had of, had a very profound experience at that retreat. Aside from the normal, well, quote normal, pretty common, I would say, uh, almost transformation of psychology that can happen in a good retreat, aside from that, aside from like emerging uh, from it more judge- less judgmental of people, more appreciative of beauty, much more equanimous, and so on, aside from that, I just had a completely mind-blowing experience. And that, that can happen, it cannot happen. It's happened once with me, and that's what you were seeing the yeah. aftermath of.
1: Right, and I think to speak generally about the retreat experience as you know the first few days are more or less hell hellish right There's, it's it's your people are when they go on retreat they encounter what are in buddhism are referred to as the hindrances difficult mind states of desire aversion restlessness sleepiness and doubt that are kind of the main headers for all the afflictive difficult emotional states that, that are made apparent because when you are not moving around so much when you're not distracting yourselves with endless distractions um, those those energies just reflect more clearly in the simplicity of the container like the container of the the retreat is so simple it's like a a mirror that reflects back your own uh reactive states so the first few days of retreat are just that just getting familiar with all the levels of ways your mind turns out reactivity now if you stay with it um and, and I, I say this as, as having seen and talked to many people who have gone through this same exact cycle. You stay with it long enough, somewhere around the third or fourth, maybe fifth day, all those reactive states, they may still be there, but they no longer produce the agitation or the, the kind of, um, suffering, the, like the, the distress that they normally yeah. cause. And I think for me, that was what was kind of mind blowing. That was the mind blowing moment, which is like, wow. I can like, and, and I don't feel disconnected from it either. Right. Like, and that's, and that's the key thing. It's that most people, like a casual observer might hear this and say, well, that's because you're fa- facilitating or creating a kind of detached passivity that's disengaged and not interested and, and hiding out in a cave or something. But that's not really what the, what the experience is. Experience is one of great intimacy with, with what is arising, but you're relating to it, I would argue, from a different level yeah. of your being. Like it's I mean like,
0: when 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 feelings are most in control of us we're actually not very aware of them right I, I mean right. And, and 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 it's when you're more aware and you see them rise arise and then uh, your awareness of them allows them to pass away without grabbing on to you and controlling your behavior but you're actually more aware you're actually in a certain sense more in touch with the feelings Uh when you're in that state, and that's why they have less control over you. Right.
1: And in one way of describing it is that you're just not, I, you know, you, it could be an unconscious identification, but on one level, your your sense of self is has fused with the, the, the content of that, that feeling.
0: Uh, you're saying uh, in the course of a retreat that can happen, that the sense of self has actually fused with the feeling.
1: No, I think that's the that's the default that most that's people the are running, good, run your because yeah, I was right? going to so, have to say
0: no my experience is different but exactly it, it is yes you the, the, the feelings the feelings are you normally and you're not very aware of them and in that sense not very in touch with them they are in touch with you <laughs> in a way and you and you're not so in touch with them right right so
1: you know in your in your sense of it um you know I, I think there's different ways that, that the meditation can be approached that will facilitate this kind of transformation. And one way is I think, which is the way you try to articulate, if I hear you correctly, is that the meditator would, would focus very closely on the sort of the micro phenomena of that feeling of the arising of the feeling and how the feeling conditions the mind and then, and then how you're relating to it, right? And that's mm-hmm. sort of one model of mindfulness practice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that sound accurate? Yeah. Right. And so there's that. And then there's also, uh, there's, I I think what I'm interested in, uh, sort of watching develop, developmentally or, or culturally in the meditative world in the West is that more and more I have seen teachers really shifting into less emphasis on the specifics of content. So the specifics of what's actually happening and, and shifting the emphasis in the meditation to the context. Within which things are known and that, and that too can, sh- will facilitate a kind of shift in relationship, which doesn't necessarily
0: need as much fine grained focus. So, so what would an example of that be? Like, uh, I'll give you an example. Like I was at a, at a, at a, at a retreat and some guy s- was falling asleep. He's snoring. And it was like, you know, my first reaction is highly aversive. Right. Like, it's like, like, first of all, I, I felt, I, I saw me, I felt myself wanting to open my eyes to identify the guy, like who is this asshole so I can bring him to justice or something. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I was aware of that. I was aware of the aversive feeling. I was aware of the urge to identify him. I mean, normally you would just do this, right? Normally you would just go, who is this fucking asshole and look at him. But because I was on retreat, I saw the feelings arise and, and didn't really engage them. Okay, that's being aware of the feelings. What would being what what would mindfulness of the context be in that case? Um, you know, you could you, you sort of you observe what's arising
1: or what's what's experienced prior to the arising of the snore, and what's what's their post the arising or the, the the cessation of the snore. So, it, like before it arises and before it ceases, or after it ceases. There's there's the the negative space of the context that that allows it to be known. This is pretty deep. We'll, <laughs> well, no, if, I mean it, it, the, the way um, uh, in the Thai forest tradition, which I've practiced in some uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's sort of this American monk who was a senior, uh, the abbot of a, a monastery in England for several decades. Um He puts it like this he said you know it's 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 a little bit like the space in a room, so noticing the space in the room mm-hmm. normally when one enters the room one 's uh sort of perceptual apparatus go to the objects in the room and you notice what 's hanging what where plants are about and what what objects are there. but what the perception doesn't normally pick up is the space in the room itself, which is the the context that allows all those objects to exist. If there was concrete filling in the room, there would be no space for any mm-hmm. recognition to occur. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, <clears throat> you know, there's this dimension of one's being, which is analogous to space. It's this, 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 this field of percept field of awareness within which all the objects of cognition are being known. And, and when that is uh, sort of recognized and, and really remembered, um, you just learn to
0: rest within that. That's, and that's, well, the yeah. I mean, there is, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if this is this, but there is, there's a kind of a, I don't know, the identification, the stillness that you can reach in meditation and kind of the identification with it. I, I do, I do kind of see what you mean is, is, is like you're more, identifying with the space within which all this stuff is happening than with the happening in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of now recalling kinds of places I've gotten on uh retreat. It's like, uh, you know, and it's like, I mean, this yeah, is. And, all, and I, you, yeah. you
1: often, you often use the example, I think of, of, of sensing sort of a, the, the, you, you, you're, you've you begun to a state where you're aware of your knee pain and, and then realizing right. the knee pain was no different from the chirping of a bird. Right.
0: Now, I was, it's, it's funny that you say that because I, when I thought, like, times I've identified more with the stillness, with the space than with the things occupying it, I, I thought of that moment that I described uh, in my book on Buddhism um, where I felt a tingling in my foot, I heard a bird singing, and I thought, uh It just felt like the tingling in my foot was no more a part of me than the bird singing, and the bird singing was no less a part of me. And 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 that's significant because that means the sense of the bounds of self are starting to dissolve. And and that was the context in which I, 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 uh, I recounted that episode. But absolutely, there's a yeah. I, I I kind of see what you mean. I kind of see what you mean. Yeah, it's a nice place to be. Right, no, just a, a and, you know, it's just, and you know, there are people. This is what's amazing. That I do believe there are people who walk around, go through life. I mean, these are often people who worked very hard at their meditative practice, but go through life with a certain amount of uh, of that. You know, like walk through life and uh, with that kind of stillness, and yet. They're totally they're totally in touch with what's going on, right? Um,
1: you know, I'm going to say say something. That will, if it, if I haven't said things that sound too woo already, I'll say something that sounds woo now. So I did last weekend. I did an online retreat with two teachers uh, from the Insight Meditation Society. Actually, three teachers, but two are a couple from Hawaii: Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters. Um, mm-hmm. And they've practiced in, for decades in the, the various. Uh, Burmese traditions that have influenced a lot of insight meditation practice in the West. And having sat with them before, I was aware that, you know, the, the teaching itself was, I, I've heard many of the things they said in the same exact phrases that they've used over, over the years. But what impressed me on this retreat, even online was that just being with them as they sat, as we, we meditated together online. I remembered sitting with them and just feeling that there was something in there, there's a gravitas in their presence, just watching them meditate that you could, I can't put my finger on what it was, but you could tell they were not being fooled by the, by the impressions of their mind. That just, there was this this rock solid presence, um, that I can't attribute to anything other than a felt sense of it, um, And, and I think that speaks to what you're saying, you know, people who practice for a long time is like that shift in their consciousness is not the result of, um, you know, kind of capricious divine intervention. It's, it's just, it's like, just like there's a, there's upper limits in in athletic performance. There's going to be an upper limits in, in, you know, human consciousness if someone is training themselves in that realm. And, and to you borrow another kind of sort of, Uh, cliche Ken Wilber phrase, but the the idea that we access, initially we access states of being, higher states of being, but with practice, those states can be stabilized as traits. And I think that's speaking to what your concern, primary concern is. How does sufficient percentage of the human species shift into a better or higher state of consciousness, whereby the tribalistic impulses and cognitive biases are not going to to run the whole ship into the, into the rocks.
0: Yeah. And I want to emphasize, it's like not everyone, uh, not nearly everyone has to acquire uh, the state of mind that you're describing in these two teachers who, 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 um, you know, it's like, um, I saw a, a poll today about like American attitudes toward different countries, favorable and unfavorable. And there's like a just a you know, there are huge differences. Like everyone hates China and Iran. Um everyone loves England and Canada, which coincidentally speak the same language we do. Hmm. Um uh the um and it's like I I think thinking this way Look, not that uh, various governments don't do uh, bad things. Sometimes, including ours. Some governments do worse things. I'm not denying any of that or, or trying to be a cultural uh, complete relativist or anything. But I think what well, you know, it, it, it's it's a well established fact that once you start uh, putting people or groups of people in the very good or very bad group, it shapes the way you think about them. Uh, in ways that may, to get back to the beginning, may impede seizing non-zero-sum opportunities to cooperate, to cool things down, rather than amp them up. And it's not like you need a bunch of Americans to be gurus to accomplish this. You do need uh, a certain number of Americans to have moments where, through some combination of of kind of relative equanimity relative objectivity and and you know just access to some information maybe about the actual world situation they revisit their assumption that this one government is uniquely horrible this one country is uniquely horrible uh and, and, and at least at that moment they revisit it fundamentally enough so that it shapes their their view in the future and and they don't they don't buy into um they're, they're less susceptible to the U.S. government, um, you know, propaganda. That's what it is about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And, um, so I just want to emphasize, I think, you know, modest amounts of progress, which is the only level I maintain on any consistent basis, um, can, can help you, uh, for example, be a better citizen online, be a happier citizen online, and can help you be a better American citizen and global citizen in the sense of just having a, a clearer view of the picture. Th- that, that's, you know, uh, again, I, I think, like, I, I, I love to talk about, uh, like, enlightenment as a serious concept. Like, what? how, <coughs> f- how close could you get to what would something that would merit the term enlightenment and i don't rule out the possibility that some people really have mm-hmm. uh, i haven't but i still like to think of i like to i like to talk about these um these levels of ascension so to speak these levels of transcendence of the ordinary crude psychology in which we are normally trapped but I right, also right. want to emphasize: so, it's like you don't have to attain nirvana to become a, a a significantly happier person and a better citizen and global citizen. I want to emphasize that. Sure. So you can you can <laughs> I mean you can you can
1: you can put the the goalposts of the big enlightenment wherever you want it. Right. And but before that. There's going to be many, many moments of micro enlightenments or micro awakenings. And, and I would say, you know, just to the, this very, very simple, the, the moment you wake up to the fact that you're aware of anger versus being, you know, lost in fantasy revenge moments, you know, that is a moment of, of a micro moment of awakening of sorts. And, yeah. and you just, and, and the practice is just building, building one of those moments upon the next. Um, so.
0: Yeah. No, just Everyone. yesterday I had, you know, this whole like pandemic thing. And then, you know, we, where I live, uh we've had a winter that's more like the ones you're having where you live routinely th- than usual. So like my mm-hmm. front lawn has been covered in snow for now, I think five weeks. And that's really unusual for here. And it's like impeded. I won't get into what kinds of exercise I usually get and anything, but it's really been a constraining factor. And like yesterday, I just realized like, my mind is in a bad you know it's like uh it's like man, I'm just reacting to everyone negatively. it's just like this is out of control and um th- those little that's a little triumph you know that moment is a little triumph and and uh for most of us, it's going to be a series of setbacks and a series of triumphs, and you want a high ratio of triumphs to setbacks and uh, but that can make a big difference, just just changing the ratio mm-hmm something we don't may
1: not have time to get into now, but maybe we can flag it for the future is that, you know, connected to that shift from being identified with content to being more identified with the context or the awareness within which content is being known, you know, that can, that can also sound like, you know, you're a form of detachment. You're stepping back and just resting as the witness and not really engaged with what you're aware of. But uh, my sense of this, and, and this is born out of at least the stuff I read, is is that with the with the dawning or the process of waking up to more and more of what you are and what your relationship to the world you're in is, you also start to see more clearly the unflattering, disp- uh, displaced, repressed. Features of your own being that you haven't really taken into consideration or allowed to, it hasn't, it hasn't been able to be seen before or recognized. And I do think there's a way that, and this is kind of a Jungian idea, but like if, to the extent that you have, have dissociated or repressed something, you will you know, project it out on others and then reject it in them. And I think there's, like with the tribalism we're seeing now, there's a lot of that going on where people are kind of not owning sort of the darker sides within their own psyche or the the, the collective psyche and then projecting it on the other and kind of going to war with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, projection is a whole, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, there is the correlation, I think, that, uh, not recognizing the dark side in yourself, uh, makes you more likely to see a a dark side an alleged dark side of, of people there is that correlation whether the dynamic that's going on there is projection in the was this originally a freudian concept projection uh, i think maybe it was but whether whether it's whether it's whether that's why i mean there's another i mean i mean i mean another way of descri- uh, of explaining the correlation is just what we've said is that if you are more aware of the dark side of you, of the of the uh, uh, of the, impu- the darker impulses, that disempowers them, and those are the impulses that were creating the darker image of the person. So, it's it's in that scenario, not so much that the the the, the unexamined darkness projects. It's just that like the definition of the darkness in you is to have unflattering images of certain kinds of people. Not everyone. Not everyone, but, but to do that. And then if you examine that part of you and disempower of it, it, you won't have that so much anymore. You won't have such warped images of other people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I think that, that actually, I'll to think about that, but I think that that's another,
0: so probably this, more accurate way of putting it. Um, so we've been talking more than an hour now. Um, God, there's so much we could cover, but I think we've covered some stuff we hadn't covered before. Now you, um, uh you mentioned you had done some reading. Did you want to get into uh you read some Alan Watts and some uh and some Krishna Murphy um I'm going and- to the Alan
1: Watts party and Krishna Murty. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's more or less what I just said. It's a bit, you know, you know Alan Watts has this idea probably mentioned in many of his books but you know before you before the 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 good-natured person tries to do good in the world, make sure that they make sure that they open to the totality of what's in the, inside themselves before they try to try to fix the world outside.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think that um, speaks to what we were just talking about.
0: Now I also saw you sent me some marked up pages. He said something else that is interesting just in the context of Trump. Uh, here's the quote in the foreseeable future, there are going to be thousands and thousands of people who detest and abominate. Negroes, not the term we would use now, Communists, Russians, Chinese, Jews, Catholics, beatniks, homosexuals, and, quote, dope fiends. Uh, These hatreds are not going to be healed, but only inflamed by insulting those who feel them, and the abusive labels with which we plaster them, squares, fascists, rightists, know-nothings, may well become the proud badges and symbols around which they will rally and... Uh, consolidate themselves, nor will it do to confront the opposition in public with, uh, huh, this is interesting. I'm not sure I buy this, but nor will it do to confront the opposition in public with polite and nonviolent sit-ins and demonstrations while boosting our collective ego by insulting them in private. Well, okay, I, I see the point. He's against the, the insulting them in private. I mean, I, I have, I've been saying for several years, like, calling Trump supporters racist is not going to increase the amount of actual racism among Trump supporters. And it may and it may it may increase it. So I was kinda I was kinda happy to see that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The um the uh that I I mean I have to say I've appreciated your writing on this. I mean this is I, I catch myself getting into some pretty righteous states in response reaction to the news and, you know, not to give your newsletter too strong of a plug, but it, there is a sobering uh, sort of a fact that, that your perspective and, 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 and commitment to that perspective has. Cause it, I mean, and, and, I, and I, and I, I, I do give you a lot of credit for that. It's, it's not, um, there aren't enough, enough people, I think trying to argue your position or the, that, that particular view f- from more of a centrist uh, angle.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned context. Uh, Part of it is, I mean, I am one of my hobby horses is cognitive empathy, which doesn't mean feeling their pain. It just means view a understanding how they see the world and perhaps going from there into the inquiry of why they see the world that the way they do. But even getting to that, that
1: first question, like how might this person be seen? How might the world look through their eyes like that? that it sounds so simple
0: That's very hard it's very and hard. and there are there is a cognitive bias that makes it hard i mean that's the aforementioned attribution error we 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 talked about that before um we, we don't have time to get deeply into it now but i mean quickly it is the uh it's a tendency we have it plays out differently in enemies and allies but with with enemies with rivals enemies uh what we tend to do, do is when they do something bad, we say, yeah, that is, they did that because that's the kind of person they are. It's, you know, there's this essence of badness in them. That's them being true to their nature when they're bad. When they do something good, we say, well, they were just showing off. They were just, what, it was something circumstantial, situational that accounts for their good behavior, but something dispositional, something about the nature of them that accounts for their their uh, bad behavior, and, you know, so if you define Trump supporters as the enemy, and then you're in that mode of looking at them, and they say something bigoted, you, you just go, yeah, that's what they are. They're bigots. We're done. That's the end of the inquiry. That's their essential nature. That's the end of the explanation. They've got this bigotry thing in them. Rather than asking, well, I mean, how did they get that way? It must be a way, unless you don't have like a scientific frame of mind. There must be some series of causal forces. Could be genes. Maybe they have a bigot gene. Could be early environment. Uh, maybe they had some run-in with people of some ethnic group. Could be their their son uh, lost his job and it's the job was taken by Latino immigrants. Could be a billion things. But... Um, if you, if you just settle for the essentialist explanation, it's just essence of them coming through when they do something bad, you're not even going to ask that question. And we should say, by the way, that Buddhism is very anti-essentialist and in, in, in a way that I think is not totally unrelated to this.
1: You know, and to that point, I just, the anti-essentialist nature of Buddhism, um, I just reminded myself recently of a story about a, a disciple of the Buddha named Angali Mala, have you heard of him?
0: No. You ever come across him? I probably came across it at one point, the, but the, the,
1: I just started reading about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but the the basic story is that for a variety of reasons, um, this person Angli Mala is so named because he, he's a serial killer, and he 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 basically kills people. And as a souvenir of his killing takes their, their their right little finger and stitches it into a mala bead of a garland that he wears around his neck. So he has a a garland of all his victims' little right little fingers on his neck. Hmm. Um and, and he is a <laughs>
0: disciple of the Buddhas you're saying not yet. Not, he, not, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> he um, <laughs> Okay good. He
1: hadn't got there yet. Um but he he was the Buddha he was meant to somehow this is the part that I, it's too, too complicated to explain, but he was meant to kill a thousand people. And uh, he was at, at 999, and he, he was living in some forest near, near I think Savati, uh, important Buddhist town, and the Buddha was walking through the forest. Angli Mala saw him, saw you know his thousandth finger uh, there in, in robes, and and proceed to chase after the Buddha to kill him. And in this story, he's not able, even though Angulimala is very physical, physically capable, he's not able to catch up to the Buddha who's walking slowly and serenely. And he's getting frustrated by the fact that he can't catch the Buddha until finally he says demands that the Buddha stop. He yells him, stop. Um, and the Buddha turns around in kind of a, a Zen like way and says, I've already stopped. It's you that needs to stop. And at that point, there's sort of this this transformation in, in Angulimala's consciousness, and he becomes a disciple of the Buddha and attains full enlightenment. And he's 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 used to re- to remind people of this uh, inessential nature of, of one's being, it, like that it can develop; it's not fixed one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so even with that really heinous karma. Salvation is still possible. So, so, Bob, I think we need to put.
0: So there's hope for me. Is <laughs> that what you're saying? There's still hope there's, for me. There's is-
1: more hope for both of us than either one of us realize.
0: Because I, I have not yet killed 999 people. Right. Uh, so far as I know. Well, that's good. That is encouraging. Um, this is a theme in a lot of religions. Uh, you know, there's no sense. There's no such thing as somebody who's too far gone. Um, uh so but, but you're
1: right but right i mean i and i've been feeling this for the last several years and this again i appreciate your writing is that um it's very easy not just to just to, to summarize someone as a bigot but then from there that it's it's a it's a gesture of dehumanization and that's that's the really the the corrosive piece of it all is that we no longer see the humanity in the other
0: and, and it's an impediment to actual understanding it's it's, right. it's 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 just it's unenlightened in that sense uh, to say, well, they did that because that's the kind of person they are. Well, obviously at the point they did it, they were in some sense that kind of person, but there must be, you know, there must, must be an explanation. Um, anyway, uh, so this has been great.
1: And, uh, go ahead. Yeah, we're getting on. Um, I was just going to say that we should, well, I was thinking about you and your, your book project and, um, and specifically thinking about, the audience that you have in mind, like is, is, and I always hate when people ask me like, what's your target audience for, for any particular project. But, um, do you have a sense of that? Like if you were trying to reach people, a specific niche of, of audience, uh, reader, what would that, who would that look like?
0: That's a good question. I mean, this, this experiment I'm doing, I kind of stumbled into it first of all. So, I've been doing this newsletter for a while. It's the non-zero newsletter. Uh, It, there was no charge. Subscription was free. And, and it's still the case that you can subscribe for free. You get less stuff, but, uh, and there's still a lot of subscribers who, 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 who get the, the less stuff. But, but I did just a few weeks ago, try this thing of charging for subscription for, for practical reasons. Um, And, uh, and And it was uh, it was a couple of weeks after starting that I just thought I had entertained the idea of using the newsletter as a place to develop the book, but I kind of felt like, okay, so I've got you know this is a uh, a much smaller number of people than the overall subscription to the newsletter, but they presumably uh, are w- would be more forgiving than average of me, right? I mean, less less judgmental, less harshly judgmental. So it's, it's, it's an, it's an audience in which I feel, it's a community in which I feel comfortable, um, you know, just trying stuff out with, without feeling, worrying too much about embarrassment or seeming too grandiose or just throwing something out half baked and so on. So I'm, I'm doing that. And, uh, it's, so, so anyway, the, the connection to your question is like, you know, is there a danger of doing that? I mean, I mean, are they too indulgent? Are they, uh, you know, because I'm I'm soliciting feedback from them. I'm I'm reading the comments they make when I write something about the book in the newsletter, and, uh, I mean, the good news is there's a real diversity of reactions, you know, uh, so that to s- some extent puts to rest my concern that it's too homogeneous an audience i guess or or you know there are people who like i said somebody's like oh what you're going to raise consciousness um and there are people who are like you know um climate change climate change climate change um whereas i think the problem is larger than that you know i mean i mean i think the set of policies so i'm getting uh a diversity of feedback the uh I guess the answer to your question is I don't really know. I, I mean, I do, but but I I feel I, I guess I uh, the conviction I'm increasingly uh, in the throes of is that there is going to have to be grassroots progress in the way we view these things. We can't keep letting our politicians buy with uh, you know amassing power by deceiving us. And I don't even think they're all trying to do that. It just works that way. Mm-hmm. That like, if they demonize a country, it's good for them politically. It just works that way. And if that's not going to work, um, we're going to, there's going to need to be somewhat broad-based change in in, in psychology, in, in the way we process the news and in our capacity to do it uh, in a state of uh, of equanimity and with some objectivity. So now if you look at all the people who are going to need to be reached, I'm not the person to reach them all, you know. It's like you, you maybe I'll reach some people who reach some people, you know. It's like you, you just – uh you speak the language you're comfortable with. I, gu- I guess my, my answer is I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time asking myself that question because I'm just naturally – not, not good at communicating with, with, with certain constituencies probably. And I, I probably shouldn't spend a lot of time trying. And I'm going to just, um, speak in a way that I feel is comfortable and, and hope that, uh, even though I'm not going to reach nearly everybody or nearly every kind of person, uh, I'll be one of many people contributing to the cause.
1: Yeah. Planting seeds, as you said in your newsletter. Yeah.
0: Right?
1: yeah. I think that. Yeah I'm, I mean I, uh, I mean the reason I asked is that I feel like there's a I mean you're obviously highly endowed with intelligence and 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 I think you probably have a very intelligent audience and they are you know college educated and I mean I I started listening to you because it felt like a continuation of of college seminars that I was in hmm. and I really appreciated that and and how you how you facilitate things um, so it, it's, it's sort of like the level of consciousness where people have, you know, have, it's not that they're anti-scientific, but they, they, they kind of see the, the limitations of a, a kind of scientific rational worldview or way of, of, a, or a particular level of seeing things that, that is bankrupt at this point. It's not able well, to apprehend. yes and no, life. I
0: mean, I personally think, I mean, my book on Buddhism was an attempt to, you know, it was kind of a. Largely scientific argument that, like, mindfulness meditation and, and, uh, I mean, it wasn't a conventionally scientific argument. It wasn't like, oh, studies show kind of argument, but it was, uh, in a certain sense grounded in a scientific worldview and trying to argue that, uh, it, it, it's, it's a, mindfulness is a move toward rationalism, toward enlightenment in that sense. And, uh, you know, I'm not, as yeah, you not- know, I'm not a su- super wooish, advocate of buddhist philosophy but um so i think that's what that's what i'm getting at is that there's an audience that would not be
1: uh interested or sympathetic to a a wooish articulation of this stuff which is what most you know myself included here most buddhist slash yogic folks sound like when they try to speak to it they don't necessarily have the cognitive philosophical scientific discipline to 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 parse the topic in a way that appeals to a non-woo
0: audience yeah I mean on the academic thing there there are people who say I'm too academic and I think maybe that's that's uh, right and that I that I should like preach more and uh and maybe they're right
1: but we'll but this is the evolution of bob uh, the bodhisattva
0: uh, yes we'll get to the bodhisattva part We're, we've definitely attained bobhood we'll get to the bodhisattva part uh later so um we hope. Alright, so, so thanks Josh, this is great. Uh, let's, pleasure, uh, Bob. let's plug our wares. Uh, you, now is it, is, uh, what is your Twitter handle? It's, uh, is it middle? middle Middleway Josh. Middle I don't do much. Way, I, middle, I, I've Josh. taken a hiatus from Twitter, not that I've been on very Twitter accurate. much.
1: Okay. Not yeah. I should have got just
0: what, Everyday every Sublime podcast. It. Uh, And you are a yoga instructor and you're doing uh, a lot of stuff online now as everyone is. Yep. Uh, in pandemic times, but you probably will will continue to do that afterwards, right?
1: Yeah, I think this online shift is part of the new normal in my world.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's nice. Yeah. It's
1: a nice night. Less travel. But yeah. Everyone should listening should should sign up and become a paid member of the non-zero thing newsletter because one thing that you held before was, I remember when you, I think you started launching the newsletter, you were saying that your hope would be that it would allow people to know that they would have a digest of world events or, or or current events, which would allow them to step back from a kind of a, an addictive consumption of online sources. And um, <clears throat> even though that, and that was when the, the schedule of the newsletter was once a week, Um, I didn't find that sufficient enough. I I couldn't go from Saturday evening to Saturday evening without dipping into other news. But with a, with a greater uh, publishing frequency on your end, um, I, I'm definitely finding it easier to, to pull back from.
0: Well, and they're, and they're a little, uh, they're a little shorter than some of the newsletters were because people can only digest so much in a day. I mean, I hope that my uh, focus on this book writing thing in the newsletter won't push out too much discussion of current events. We do one regular thing you can count on is on Fridays we're putting out a summary of kind of foreign policy stuff and we try to include uh, examples of ways in which the American processing of foreign policy stuff is being warped by what's called the blob, which is the, the term that uh, for the kind of the, the part of the foreign policy establishment that has held sway for a these many years. Um hmm. So there's, there, there is that. Uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to get like three out a week. There's the, something or other in the middle of the week. Yeah, that, that'll vary. Um, and then something book related on, on Monday. So far I'm sticking with that, but thanks for the plug. There is, and you can then, also subscribe and not pay and, and something will show up every once in a while in your right, inbox. Right. Not sure what it'll be. Something.
1: Well, as a consumer of one, I would say the, the shorter formatting is, is helpful.
0: It's, yeah, it's yeah. I I had My, been going kind of overboard. Uh, more frequent and shorter is better. Yeah. Just All like right.
1: practice. Just like it's better to practice shorter amounts, but more frequently than one occasion. What is, long what is your practice these days? Oh, we're going to go there.
0: Oh, we don't have to. It's a short, <laughs> you know, it doesn't take long to say, <laughs> take, take. you know, um, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm in between 30 minutes and an hour a day sitting,
1: and I'm very grateful to be able to take a long walk in nature most days, too.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Walks are nice. Yeah. And you? Where are you at? I'm between 30 and 40 in the morning. Maybe next time we can talk about why
1: I think 60 minutes is easier than 30.
0: We should. We should. We'll we'll come back to that. Uh, Good luck convincing me of that. (laughs) No, I can see the point. I can totally see In fact, it's it's
1: it's it's not dissimilar to why a long like a week long retreat is easier than a weekend retreat.
0: That's way better. A week long is way better than a weekend. Yep. (laughs) So maybe you can't convince me. No, I can I can see the logic. But we should talk about it anyway down the road. All right. So there will be another another Dharma Bob conversation. Thank you for initiating these and. Well, I think we maybe
1: talk about it with people back at the at the, at the home office about whether we want to call it Dharma ba- Babasattva. Well,
0: we'll get back to you when we've uh And puns are terrible. I apologize for that one. When we've run that by the focus group, you'll be the first sure. to to see the results. Okay. Right. Well, well, thank you. Good luck with the ice. You too. Take care.
1: Okay.